Welcome to my podcast series. I'm Gabriella Aranka, and I'm going to be speaking to Delia McCabe, a nutritional neuroscientist. Delia has a background in psychology and received her PhD from Adelaide Medical School. Delia's current research focuses on the neurobiology of stress and nutrition. In this episode, we talk about vegan diets and the psychology of dieting and how to stick to it. Delia, welcome to our second podcast. Delia McCabe, neuroscientist, nutritionist and psychologist. And we're going to be talking about vegan diets particularly, aren't we? We are, Gabby. Thank you for the invite. I'm delighted to be here again. Yeah, great. Yeah, so let's get into it because I, I was definitely curious personally because I watched The Game Changers, which came out about, about six months ago, I think, like last year. And it was all about vegan diets and really about elite athletes that were vegan diets. And it had some really interesting research that was done in it. It was very convincing. And after watching it, I felt compelled to try vegan for a month, which I ended up doing. I felt, definitely felt more energized, but I did feel hungry. But I'd like to know <laughs> what, <laughs> it just didn't feel like I was ever filled up. But I would like to know your position on vegan diets, whether you think they are good for you, not so good for you, or yeah, just your, your well-researched well, well knowledge that you have about this topic. This is an interesting question, and I've dealt with it in a number of different ways over the years. And I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is vegan diets in relation to protein, because that's the first thing that people are asked when they follow a vegan diet. Where do you get your protein? And it's based on a common misconception that plant food doesn't have protein. But if we just go a step further, we'll see that all plants to greater or lesser degrees and all animal products are made up of amino acids. And animal products have a lot of amino acids, which means they're very, you know, they've got concentrated protein in them. And things like grains and rice have different concentrations of amino acids and, and so do some plants. So if you have a really good diet made up of a wide variety of vegetables and grains and legumes and nuts and seeds, you'll get the full array of amino acids. So technically speaking, or should I say theoretically speaking, you should be able to get all the amino acids you need to be able to do what protein does in the body, which is repair and grow and build and so on. And it's important because of cell membranes and so on. So theoretically speaking, a vegan diet should be able to give you everything that you need in relation to protein. That's the first thing. The second thing is it cannot give you everything in relation to all the nutrients we need for optimal health, including brain health, because vegan diets can be, will be low or non-existent in B12, which you get from animal products and animal flesh. It's also got a different kind of iron in it to the iron that you get in, in plants. So the iron you get in animal products is more easily absorbable for humans versus the iron you get in plant products and also you may not get enough zinc in plants versus animal products and those are three extremely important nutrients in terms of overall health and specifically brain health so there have been cases of, of um, women who brought their children up as vegans and these children end up either dying or with brain damage because you need those nutrients for brain development so this is a very serious conversation however if you have a very good vegan diet and you supplement wisely with the correct nutrients that you're not getting enough of, you can have a very healthy diet. And I think that's what a lot of people um, 
are referring to when they say that a vegan diet can meet all your nutritional needs. Yes, but if it's supplemented wisely with the ones you can't get from, from animal products and nutrients. So it becomes a complex conversation because it's not just about is vegan good, is vegan bad. It's how you do vegan. The other important thing to keep in mind is that when people eat animal products and they follow a whole lot of media and blogs and people that say animal products are really good for you, they're really happy because everyone likes good news about their bad habits. And if someone loves eating bacon and eggs for breakfast and someone says, hey, that's a great diet for you, um, and on top of it, you'll lose weight, guess what? They'll be following that diet. But you know, they'll end up being um, very constipated because animal products have very little to no fiber. They will end up being deficient in a lot of nutrients if they're not also eating a lot of plant foods, which are very rich in fiber and a whole lot of nutrients. Um, and the challenge is also if, they've, if they're going into a diet like paleo diet or a keto diet, they can end up very low in carbohydrate intake. And carbohydrates are the primary and preferred fuel for the brain. So, you know, that leads one down another, another um, pathway. You know, what are the reasons that people are choosing this? If they're choosing it for weight loss, you know, that's a different discussion. If they're choosing it for animal welfare, that's a different discussion. And we've touched on that, Gabby. So, you know, it's an interesting point that you made. When you followed the vegan diet, you felt a whole lot, you know, you felt more, you had more energy. A lot of people report that initially. Um, people often also lose weight on a vegan diet. But the long-term studies of people that aren't supplementing well on a vegan diet are not very well investigated. And that's obviously where one would want to get to a point where you can investigate the diet long-term for people. But then, you know, you bring in the ethics. You can't do a randomized double-blind controlled trial on that because we know that these nutrients, if not consumed, actually have long-term devastating, sometimes especially in children, irreversible effects. So you couldn't do that from an ethical perspective. And then, you know, the, the other thing to keep in mind is that who's going to fund that kind of research? Um, you know, a, 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 <laughs> a research partner with very, very deep pockets because you have to control for so many different variables when you do that kind of research. So you noticed that you felt better, you had more energy, but you were always hungry. Now that can be for a number of reasons. You know, there could be a psychological variable attached to thinking that animal products give you real protein and so you never feel fully satisfied until you actually have real protein that's the one side the other side is that maybe your stomach um, you know was stretched when you ate animal products although it doesn't really make sense because you think that with plant products with all the fiber your stomach would be stretched more so that's an interesting thing you know do we build up a tolerance for protein if we consume it when we're young and then need that form of protein you know as we get older or is it just a psychological variable that comes into play? So we don't have answers to that yet. One thing we know for sure is that the most researched diet is the Mediterranean diet. And that's a diet that includes grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, good oils, and animal products. Not in vast quantities, but they definitely exist in the diet. And that's the most researched diet, which shows very good outcomes in terms of weight stability, in terms of even mood, and in terms of longevity and cognitive um, capacity. So we know that a diet that is more well-balanced in terms of not cutting anything out significantly is the most researched diet. Yeah, and that really, that's the blue zones, right? Like the Mediterranean and the um, Japanese islands and where they eat that, that kind of diet. Very absolutely in fatty oils and fish and, yeah, vegetables. And, and it sounds like they're having a pretty good life as well. So, and I really, 
appreciate the psychological aspect uh, and I, I think that's so important not to negate that because your physical body is operating with the psychological level as well and making those choices and why you make choices and what you're expecting to feel like as well um, from diet and what the food you, you take into your body. But I will say this about the, um, about the game changers, they did prove that B12 is actually being supplemented through animals as well. But, um, they actually proved that and that animals are getting the supplement and therefore all we're doing is getting the supplement via the animal. So if you're vegan and you're taking B12, you're just bypassing the carrier more than it's actually coming from the animal. Correct. So, you know, it opens up another discussion and then you say, what kind of supplement must you have and how often must you have it? Um, and then, of course, you can build up a store of B12 in the body. And if you don't have any B12 for a couple of months or even years, some research has shown, you will actually be able to draw on that stored B12. But over, over a period of time, you'll actually become deficient. And that's where it becomes a problem. So these are all complex discussions. But I think, you know, just to go back to the psychology of it, Gabby, I think it's a very important point to discuss because the reason a person changes their diet can be very leading in, in relation to how they supplement that diet and what their choices are around that diet. So if they choose not to eat animal products because of animal welfare, they're obviously more sensitive people than people that don't care. So then that leads you to the point, you know, they're much more sensitive, they care a lot more. How does that work out in, you know, in neuroanatomy or in, in neurophysiology? So these are people who maybe have a heightened emotional response. So because they have this heightened emotional response, what does that mean in relation to their food choices generally? Um, if they're much more emotional, maybe they actually suffer more from, from feelings of stress. That means they would be using up more nutrients in, in relation to that. Then you find um, particularly a, a demographic that often changes their diet is young girls. Young girls change their diet when they become exposed to, to um, the media that says they need to conform to a specific body size. So they change their diet, generally going to vegetarian and vegan diets. It gives them a feeling of control over their lives, which is very much a psychological um, perspective that, they, that they're taking over their lives because they're generally at a certain age where some things seem very much out of control. Their bodies are changing, you know, they're experiencing hormone fluctuation and so on. So often they choose to modify their diet because it gives them some control. If they go and, and consume a vegetarian and a vegan diet, they then start declining in zinc, B12 and iron as well. So then they can become anemic, which is a huge challenge. But if they start getting uh, suboptimal um, amounts of zinc, this has a much more um, dangerous effect because this affects their taste buds. So eventually they start losing their appetite and then they start losing weight. And often that gains the respect of their peers and also the concern of their, their parents. And then it's a matter of, oh no, you know, um, so-and-so is losing so much weight, that's not good. But that gives them a feeling of control. They've actually taken control of the situation. And of course, there's certain names for these kind of um, mental health challenges that young girls can experience. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to reason with a person when their brain isn't functioning optimally. And I've had a few cases of young girls that refuse to change their diet. And, you know, I've had to send them to the doctor to go and get blood tests. And the doctor can come back to them with actual proof to say, look, you're extremely low in B12. You're actually anemic and you have very little zinc. And then I have to sit down with them and explain to them that this is actually changing the way their brain works and they can't make good decisions. 
unfortunately, in the past, you know, these kinds of girls were sent to psychologists and the psychologists would try and talk them better and try and reason with them to start eating food and adding different foods to their diet. These girls couldn't hear those words of counseling because their brain was actually incapable of doing that. Now, you know, enlightened therapists know that you have to deal with this issue on both fronts. So this is why the discussion of the psychology of your, your dietary choice is very, very important. You know, the other thing is, if someone is trying to manage their, for example, type 2 diabetes, and they come across some information on the internet that says, hey, you know, you follow a ketogenic diet, you can get your blood glucose under control. They then follow that diet and they start losing weight. And I think that's the most wonderful thing. But no one says, hey, hold on a second. You know, you could end up with kidney stones. You could be overloading your, your, your kidneys. Um, you know, if you follow a paleo diet, you may be eating too much protein, also a problem for, for your kidneys. So the reasons people follow a diet are just as important as the particular diet that they follow. Sorry, that was a bit of a long no, explanation. No, that's so true. And I, I really like what you said about it's definitely control about, um, you know, if you can't control the external world, you'll try and control things that you can control. And, and that's anorexia I've read about. That that's, it's really about control, wanting to be an anorexic because you can't control the conditions of others and what's going on around you. Um, also, I think the psychological aspect is it's like mind over matter. And really you'd be... I'm proud to hear it's my second day without coffee. <laughs> really inspired <laughs> after the last time we spoke because I've been drinking two coffees a day and I know it's not good for me. I can feel it. I can feel my adrenaline running and I, I, I feel, I don't feel good, you know, and I don't feel balanced and I, you know, energies are spiking and going up and down. So I'm doing it again. I set it in motion about a week ago that I'm going to do this for a month and I'm only going to drink hot water, cold water and mineral water and no other drinks. So, but the last couple of days I have had black tea because I don't want to get that really terrible caffeine headache and then I'll taper off the tea um, over the next couple of days. But so that, that that's part of a diet for me, that mind over matter. And I think that's what it becomes. And I think that people that really struggle with diets, they just can't get that mind to come into line with, this is what you've got to do to be healthy. This is what you've got to do to have energy feel better, lose weight, whatever they're doing a diet for. And I think that's when people fail because they just can't get that. It's, it's a strengthening your mind. What, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's quite complex because, you know, changing your diet isn't just about changing the food you eat. It's about changing the neural pathways that you've established over very long periods of time. And often, you know, that's that, that starts in your, in your family of origin. You know, what foods did your family eat? You know, why did they choose those foods? Did they choose certain foods when, when people were stressed or, you know, for different celebrations? Was there a celebration every week? You know, what foods did they choose to celebrate? It becomes a complex discussion. So those neural pathways are very well entrenched by the time people reach adulthood and they then start making decisions based on, on you know, how they feel, maybe their body shape, their mood. And, you know, things like blood glucose with, with type 2 diabetes. So those are things that need to be taken into account. So there's the psychology of that. There's the neurology of that with the neural pathways. And then, of course, it's what your body needs. If you do a lot of physical activity, you need more food than someone who sits in front of their computer every day. You know, men and women have different needs as well. Um, so that's something. Then you have age that you take into account. Then you have metabolic activity you take into account. And there's even a genetic component as to how quickly you use up energy and how efficient that energy is. And even in terms of how your body uses nutrients, 
there's a genetic attached, you know, link to that. So there are all these different discussions that have to come into it. So it's not simply just changing behavior. It's changing, you know, why do you want the behavior? You know, what are your values? Um, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person that needs support from other people? Are you really disciplined? Can you do it on your own? You know, will you do better to have a mentor or a coach to, to lead you along this path? Do you need to make a giant change or a small change? And I'll just give you a story of, of a situation that I had, which taught me a very big lesson. I gave a, a talk at a school and um, I was teaching, you know, the, the, the parents at the school about how important nutrition was for the children to reach their genetic potential. You know, everybody wants the best for their children. And if they're eating really well and supplying their brain with all the nutrients that it needs to grow really well, it will reach its genetic potential. So we had this lovely conversation and I sent them off all excited, you know, about changing their children's diets with ease and simplicity. But I forgot to tell them to do it slowly. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I forgot to tell them that revolution is not a good idea. Evolution is a better idea. So the next day I got a call from one of the mums and she said, I was so excited when I went home. I went into the pantry and I threw away all the junk food. And then the family came home and they looked at the, at the bin and they said, where all our, what's all our, you know, what are all our favorite snacks doing in the bin? And then she had a problem. And then of course they all hated me. So now I know to tell people to make changes, you know, slowly. Don't go and throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, just run out of certain things and then replace them with a healthier alternative. Um, don't tell people how bad something is. Tell them how good something is rather. And, you know, never deprive anybody. Always tell them this is a much tastier replacement. And, you know, we've spoken about chocolate before. So mm. these are different ways to get people to change the way they're doing what they're doing in relation to their food and their food choices, but making it easier and nicer with no deprivation. And I think when people approach it from that perspective, um, it's a different, it's a different approach. Uh, I read a blog post yesterday by a very well-respected um, doctor in the functional medicine field, and he was telling people what they should start eating. And I really respect everything that he says, and he's a he's a phenomenal voice in the in the wellness industry. But my perspective is a little bit different, and it's probably because of my psychology background. And it would rather be to add a whole lot of things into your diet until the bad things fall out, hmm, because okay. then you don't feel deprived. And that is just because I understand human nature maybe a little bit more than he does because of my background. So we want to avoid deprivation. That's the first thing we want to avoid. We want to make food delicious. We want to make it appetizing. We want people to be excited for their next meal, not to be dreading it. And you don't do that by taking out all the food they love and adding in food they don't love. That's not the way to do it. There's a much more subtle and easier way to do it until eventually they look up and they go, well, you know, I haven't had that junky food for months. And that's, that's the aim of the exercise. Yeah, and I think um, I was saying to you about advertising as well that I feel that people, that's, they're being advertised that these, these foods are, are food for starters, but you know, you know, the rule is shop on the outside of the supermarket and not the, the middle aisles because it's just not, it's not nutritious food. It's, it's filler, a lot of it. And um, I think it's, quite challenging for people if they haven't been exposed, like talking about what you've been brought up with. If you've been brought up with, you know, frozen peas and, and meat and potatoes and not, not a lot of um, a variance of food, you'd see, see it very um, simplistic or black and white or whatever is in the supermarket is okay to ingest. And you don't really make that connection that what you're putting into your body is having an effect on your health. You're just going with what you know and you haven't really branched out because it takes a lot. It takes a lot of initiative 
to seek out advice or information, uh, to look things up, to buy books, to read articles, to look at videos about health and wellness. If it's not, if it hasn't been part of your upbringing, it can be, you know, that can be a stumbling block in itself. And to understand that just because there's an ad for something, that it's okay to eat it because it's really not. It's back again, back. <laughs> what you know about someone's making money from from those things? So, I think those. It really is those two things, like really that psychological comprehension of of your behaviour and how you've been trained, and overcoming that to be able to accept a healthy diet. Because then there's a lot of what people think about what a healthy diet is. Like you said, people think of it as being boring or bland or not edible. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge problem. That's a huge deterrent. That's why most people, you know, when they think about a healthy diet, they think of carrot sticks and that doesn't inspire anybody. So that, that's a huge problem. And I think people just assume that if something is palatable, it's good for you. You know, just because you can eat something doesn't mean it's actually food. It's just a mixture of chemicals and that's a huge problem. But then it's about taste buds, you know, as, as we were saying, you know, you, you get acquired, you acquire that kind of food. But the thing that we spoke about on the last podcast was, was fat and how when you have enough of the right fat, it actually impacts your taste buds and it also makes sure that the flavor molecules in the food that you're eating are well dispersed. So your food tastes more flavorful when it's got good fat with it. And that, that's a very important thing to keep in mind as well. But I think this is a little bit of a sobering comment, but most people only want to change when they're in pain. Um, you know, pain is, seems to be a greater, the avoidance of pain seems to be a greater motivator than the gain of something. And that's a very sad thing about human nature. So mostly when people are, you know, feeling really sick and tired and overweight, or they've got a diagnosis of like type two, or even, you know, with cognitive decline, people go, oh, I better change my diet. So it's unfortunately when they get to the end of the road that they want to change their diet, there are very few people that are proactive and say, you know, I actually want to make sure that terrible thing doesn't happen to me. Unfortunately, it happens to them and then they make the decision. So I think that if, if people are exposed more and more to this, I'm hoping that that human trend will shift and that people will become more proactive. But even if they're not proactive, they can figure out if they listen to the right people that it's not about deprivation. It can actually be about enjoyment. Because if you can still enjoy all your food, Gabby, and love all your food, and it's healthy for you, and you gain energy and enthusiasm, and you cope better with life, and you lose weight, I mean, who wouldn't choose that? Absolutely. And I think it is just, you know, it is taking that initiative to expose yourself to something else and, and not fear it as well. Some people can fear giving up those those sort of bad habits or, or people can leave their bad habits as badges as well. Like, Oh yeah, I ate, you know, some, I ate a whole cake or, <laughs> you know, they can, absolutely, <laughs> you know, they, they can get some kind of joy out of saying how, how gluttonous they can, they can be at times. But Delia, for me, I think, you know, eating a healthy balanced diet, I mean, it's just imperative for myself and um, health and wellbeing has always been big in my life. And, but for people that, don't have that what would be your suggestion to get onto that path of health and wellness if they haven't been exposed you know like you have like I have what would be your insight to um, trying trying a healthier diet going to organic markets what would be like your first choice of thing to do I think the first thing that someone needs to think to themselves is why do they want to make a change I think they need to be very clear on why they want to make a change. If they want to lose weight, then they need to set a goal. You know, have a two, three-month goal 
and say, okay, I'd like to lose this amount of weight, but I want to do it without feeling deprived. And then find a way, you know, find somebody that can support them in that goal. If they want to do that to lower their blood glucose, then they need to investigate that. And interestingly, it's all the same path that they'll choose, but their motivation is really important. If you want to, you know, manage your type 2 diabetes better so that you can play with your grandchildren and, and be with them while they're growing up, that's a very much more powerful motivator than saying to yourself, you know, I just need to lower my blood glucose level. It needs to be tied to something that you value and something that's very important to you because then you'll invest a lot more emotional energy into that change. I think something else that people have to realize is that change is actually hard and it's difficult in the beginning, but it gets easier as you go along. And that's just because you start forming a new neural pathway. And, you know, every day it gets a little bit easier and every day you make a better choice. Um, so I think people, the first thing people need to do, sit down and be very clear about why they want to make the change. And once they do that, they can attach it to an outcome that means a lot to them. And then they'll be much more motivated to do that. Um, I think, you know, having someone stand over you and saying, you need to do this because X, Y, and Z. The doctor is very seldom instrumental in getting the person to change unless he terrifies the living daylights out of them and says you're going to be dead in two weeks, which doctors don't do. You know, they can be serious, but they're not going to say that. So tying it to something that really matters. Maybe you want to go on a cruise, obviously post-COVID. And when you go on the cruise, you want to feel healthy. You want to go swimming in the ocean. You want to go snorkeling. And then you tie it to that, to that ultimate goal. And to be able to do that, you need to make some changes in your life. And, and I think for me, that's a big thing. And that's just bringing the psychology back into it, Gabby. Definitely, I definitely think that's the first step. You have to you have to set your mind to that to a goal or to just program it. Like you know, like I've been thinking about the coffee, giving up the coffee for the past week. Okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it on this day, and I'm I'm giving it up and and just imagining it as well. And you kind of imagine what it's going to be like not having that thing that you've become dependent on. And and it's really if you the joy of that as well is when you do something and you see you can achieve it. You can know you can do more as well. You can just keep going. So it's just like these little steps of, of achievement, and that kind of spurs you on to to keep, yeah, to keep on those paths to goals. And Delia, again, I know we were saying about like I tried that vegan for a month, and I was just wondering what would be if you started by it. Is a month enough? How long do you have to give your body to really get the benefits of a diet? Is it? Three months, six months, like what, what does the body have to go through to eliminate all those other, um, you know, whatever you've been taking into the body, if it's been like lots of sugar and fat? And yeah, how long does it take to eliminate that from your body? Do you, do you have that kind of information? It's a, it's a Pandora's <laughs> box question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good question. I just don't think a month is enough. Like, you know, a month is kind of, it's just something you play with. But if you're serious about something, you, I don't know, I feel like you'd have to give it three, six months, a year to really notice the benefits or the difference in your, your energy levels and, yeah, physical body. It's a good question, Gabby. I think everybody wants to have instantaneous results, you know, which is why over-the-counter meds are so popular. Because if you've got a headache, just swallow a tablet and it must be gone instantly. The body takes time to change and adapt. And, you know, the 21-day myth, the 21-day habit myth started because a plastic surgeon realized, and this was a couple of decades ago, that it takes 21 days for a person to actually recognize their new face. 
And so some of the self-styled uh, motivation gurus took that on board and, and changed the message slightly to say it takes 21 days to create a new habit, which is not true. It takes 61 plus days to create a new habit. So I think a lot of people want to do something for a month and they think that the habit's ingrained. It's definitely not. You need another two months to, to do that. So that, that's the first part of you know, answering your question. The second part of that is, you know, if your body has been used to highly refined, lots of sugar, lots of damaged fat, um, processed food, you're going to definitely crave that kind of food for a period of time. Now, it depends on how long you've eat, eating that food for. It depends on the reasons you were eating that food for. It depends on exactly what kinds of food the, 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 you know, that is. So that can take a long time to get over that habit. You know, when you talk to people who've had a smoking addiction, you, you know when you speak to them, they say if they get into an environment where someone is smoking, instantly they feel like lighting up again. And it can be very similar in terms of you know, eating junky food. So you don't want to expose yourself to those environments very quickly. You want to make sure that you avoid those environments because you don't want to quickly fall back into, into the bad habit. So that's another thing to keep, you know, to take into account. The other thing about how your body's going to respond, the body loves good food and all the nutrients that you can possibly supply it with. So the minute you start doing that, the body's going to start using it because food is actually information and food will tell your cells what to do and they'll start working more efficiently. And like you noticed, you had more energy, you know, you felt, you felt lighter and brighter. So that is definitely a very positive change, but you also felt hungry. So someone would have to go, go over that if they really wanted to stick to the no eating meat program. And then they'd have to make sure that they're supplementing correctly with those nutrients and then they'd have to make sure that they didn't feel hungry because if you feel hungry you're going to fall off the wagon so to speak so it's that those kind of things to take into account so it definitely comes back to the commitment to why the person wants to change and the body will happily take all the wonderful good food that you can give it and will use it and people can notice a difference in their blood glucose in 72 hours when they have enough of the right kinds of food that balance blood glucose out and instantly they'll start feeling better. And then, you know, they can start cut back, starting to cut back with their doctor's support on the, the medication that they're busy taking. But it's a matter of just, you know, being wise about it, making sure that you don't have the kinds of food in your pantry that you're going to fall back on um, when you get to the end of the day and you go, Oh, I've had a bad day and I don't feel like making a meal. You need to set up those, those kind of checks and balances to make sure that you don't, you know, fall, fall back on the bad choices again. But as far as the body goes, the body will be ecstatic to get all those nutrients and be able to use it really well. And that'll improve your gut, it'll improve your mood, it'll improve your focus, your concentration, you'll start losing weight. And all of those things are positive reinforcements for your decision. So it's kind of like nature helps you along the way if you make the decision and, and, and you move forward with that. So sorry, once again, a bit of a long explanation. No, no, and I, I really like what you said about, um, you know, I've had a bad day and then you reach for the bad thing, whether that's wine, chocolate, ice cream, cakes. It's funny how that mood will match something on that level as well. I always find that really <laughs> interesting, you know. So like, I'm going to get the carrot sticks out and the hummus and make a nice fresh salad, you know, that's, you know, that's well, yeah, generally people that have a bad day want the want the fix which is actually bad for you and actually makes you feel bad after a really brief satisfaction you feel bad you can feel it yeah you can but you see that very brief satisfaction is actually a release of opioids and those opioids actually calm down the stress response 
and allow you to feel calm and relaxed and in control and that everything's okay before you have that blood glucose dip. And that's a learned behavior, Gabby. So that's where the neurology of, of behavior and, and, and food habits comes in because you learn that that bag of crisps is going to give you that instant lift. You don't exactly know the mechanism underpinning how it does that, but you know that it does it and that's a learned behavior. So yeah, you need to find a replacement for that. Um, and one of the things to do, because what ac actually happening is what we call decision fatigue, that the brain actually runs out of energy towards the end of the day. And then you easily to do one of two things. You, ease, you either do a knee jerk reaction, which is a habitual response, or you do nothing. But in the case of the brain being hungry, it will always choose food. It won't ever choose nothing because it's a survival um, you know, mechanism. So decision fatigue is something to avoid and make sure that you've got a check and balance when that's going to happen. So don't have those chocolate brownies in the pantry. Have something else that is also yummy, but doesn't have the same effect on you instantly. And I think recognizing those initial thoughts, you can override them or you can just ride the wave of them. So you don't have to give into them just because you have that thought and that, that sensation that you're going to be fulfilled um, briefly by the, by the packet of, of um, lollies or whatever it is. You, you know that you, you just have to give your time, give a little bit of time and maybe give a bit of focus to why you're, why you're doing what you're doing and focusing on your goals. And you can just get past the, that, that little bit of chatter that tries to drag you into that underworld of wine and chocolate and cheese. And <laughs> Absolutely. I think something that people can do, they can find an image of what their goal is. And they can take that image and they can put it on the fridge or put it inside their pantry door or put it somewhere that they know they can look at when they're having a bad moment and they can just remind themselves of what the overall goal is. And then, you know, they can check in with themselves. Ask to people, sometimes people reach for food when they're actually thirsty because thirst is something that people can often overlook and they say, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm hungry, but they're not actually, they're actually thirsty. So that's something to do. Just have a glass of water, take a deep breath, go and look at your pet, go and give them a stroke, walk around on the grass, and then come back and see if you want to make the same decision. And hopefully you don't have that bad thing in the pantry. You have something else. But I think, and once again, you know, you're starting to build a new neural pathway. It's not going to be overnight. People need to be patient with themselves. If they feel tempted and they feel guilty and they feel bad because they're wanting the food that they've been used to consuming for two decades, they're actually being too hard on themselves. It takes ages to build a new neural pathway. They just need to persevere with it. It's like anything. And once they realize that, they'll say, okay, this is actually a process. It's not an overnight instant click your fingers and it's done. It's a process that they just have to commit to. I think also that what you're saying about even feeling hungry. One thing when I did the vegan diet, I realized how little I ever feel hungry. So when I felt actually like, oh, I could eat something. So that was, that's interesting too, to think how many times we eat without even being hungry. Not even, your body's not even craving anything. It's just a, a, a ritual. And just this idea yes. of breakfast, lunch, and dinner even, that's just someone's concept of eating. And we know that that's not what all cultures do. You know, in like the Mediterranean region, they like to eat late at night and then, they have siestas in the afternoons and they, they have a very different out times of the day that they actually consume food. Um, I also like Michael, is it Michael Morley, the 5-2 diet? Michael Morley. Yeah, yeah, I saw him. Yeah, I saw him speak at a, at a conference and I, I really, I love that idea. I've tried it. It hasn't worked for me. 
I just, uh, so you know, the 16 hour feeding window. Yes. Have you tried it? It's the, it's the intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And look, it's an interesting concept and people have asked me about that a lot. And I think it's very individual. I think when people, it depends on their, their metabolism. It also depends on their stress level. If people are really stressed and they're battling, you know, with adrenal exhaustion and they're trying to do intermittent fasting, they're just going to add insult to injury because being really hungry and, and feeling that sense of hunger adds to the stress response because the body and brain sees that as a huge stressor if you don't have food. Obviously, over time, if you practice it for, for, for long enough, you don't have that intense hunger. So you can get used to it. But I often suggest to people who want to do it to be able to manage weight because they're so stressed or manage their life and they're using that as an excuse to do that to first deal with the stress and then go into the intermittent fasting. There's a lot of signs to support intermittent fasting for atrophy and all sorts of wonderful things that happen to your cell and cognitive benefit. But there's not a lot of research on that in humans long term. So most of that research is, is um, animal research. So we can't always extrapolate that to humans. Humans are a lot more complex than rats in a cage, you know, with running around a maze and so on. So I would be hesitant to say that that fits, you know, the, the, the goal for everybody. Definitely some people can benefit from that. And many people have benefited from that. I say to people, if you can go from six o'clock dinner, when you have your dinner, to seven or eight o'clock the next morning, that's a good 13, 14 hours of not consuming anything. If that's as, as good as your intermittent fasting can go, that's excellent. And I think that will, that's, that's wonderful. It gives your digestive system a wonderful break. It allows for cell growth and, and development and all sorts of things that happen when, when you're not consuming food. And that's wonderful. But to push it more than that, if that becomes a stress for you to do, then don't do it. You don't have to. Just as long as you're doing it for that period of time, that's wonderful. And then don't eat between meals, you know. Break your fast in the morning at whatever time you decide to do that. And then eat when you're hungry, as you've just pointed out. As you say, you know, you, people look at the clock and go, oh, it's one o'clock, I have to eat. It's not the case. That feeling of hunger is a wonderful feeling. It's actually a feeling of liberation. And a lot of people don't realize that because it's a direct, direct message from your brain and your body that now is the right time to consume food. And it's really a wonderful sign. And if people took that to heed more often, we'd have a lot less um, weight problems. But as you said, you know, people eat because they, they think they need to. So you may find that you break your fast at, let's say, half past eight and nine. And then you're only hungry at like two, half past two. And then you have a larger meal. And then maybe for dinner, you have a much smaller meal. And then the next morning, you wake up and you do the same thing. And you do that over a period of time, it becomes a habit. And then you're actually doing intermittent fasting, but not as strictly as you know, some of the zealots online will tell you that you need to do it to get the benefit. I think everybody needs to look at themselves individually before they you know, follow that path. Delia, I love talking to you and I love hearing the psychology along with the nutrition because it's so important that they're two things, you don't usually hear them together. It's always just nutrition this and then psychology that and they're so separate but they are actually one and the other and I think we've really what we've discussed today has really proven that as well. Thank you so much for your time. If someone wants to find more information out about you where would they go? They can go to my blog which is www.lby.life which stands for lighter brighter you dot life and they can go and read my articles there. They can also purchase my books I'm busy working on an online course at the moment, which is taking my in-person course 
and turning it into an online course so that I can still help people and support them to make change. And that's what I'm going to be doing, taking the psychology, the neurology and the nutrition and putting it together. So I'm looking forward to doing that. And people can always email me and ask, you know, ask me a question. Um, I can do private um, coaching for people if they're interested in that. So they can just reach out if that's what they're interested in doing. And we can work out a three or six month program. And um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn. So people can find me wherever they want to. Oh, great. You're, you're tuned in. You're in all these places. Delia, so great to talk to you. Thanks so much. An absolute pleasure, Gabby. Have a wonderful afternoon. And you too. Take care.